Amazing. Thanks so much uh, for reading Tatenda. Um, we've seen some strange things uh, as we've been going through this Genesis um, account and uh, some more strange things today. Um, so let's pray. Let's ask that the Lord will help us uh, discern what this means for us, what it reveals about him uh, and about our own hearts. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask so much that your spirit would be with us this morning, that he would help us understand the word that he breathed out, that he inspired. And we pray that he would help us to both fix our eyes more upon you and better understand the problems in our own hearts and in our own life. We pray us in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so Jacob uh, has been away from home for almost uh, 20 years now at this point. You've been following, you, you know that he kind of fled and he left, and now he's on his way back. That was always the plan, that he would leave his homeland, and at some point he returned. And he returns now with this huge family. There's cattle, there's camels, there's possessions. He is incredibly wealthy. Um, but, you know, some of us might have experienced this, that, that, that some homecomings can be more awkward than, than other homecomings. I don't know, you've gone off to university for the term, you've barely made contact with your parents, and then comes the point where you've got to see them, and uh, you kind of still feel a little bit guilty. Uh, I've barely said anything to them, I've been taking their money and spending it happily, but, but had no real contact, and now I've got to go and see them. You feel a little bit awkward, don't you? But this, the level of awkwardness here, the level of difficulty here, is infinitely greater than that. Because do you remember why Jacob fled? He fled because he had tricked and manipulated his father and his brother Esau. He had humiliated both of them. And Esau's last words to Jacob were effectively, one day I'm going to kill you. And so Jacob fled. And to come home means coming back to Esau. And that's the moment we've got to. He now needs to face his brother. So we're going to see that. We're going to think that through and see how it is the Lord steers Jacob through this and all that it reveals about God and about us. First point is this, human striving. That's how Jacob has been living his life up until this point, striving and grasping. Human striving leaves us fearful. So as Jacob prepares to meet Esau, he flits between faith and fear. And again, you, you might know something of that experience. You've got an exam or there's a, a performance review at work or the test results that you've got to go and receive from the GP. And one moment you tell yourselves it's going to be fine. We convince ourselves it'll be okay. It'll all work out. But then the next moment we're panicking. It's not going to be fine. What was I thinking when I thought it was going to be fine? That's madness. It's not going to be fine. And we're gripped with fear. That's something of Jacob here. So 32 verse 1, Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. Now this is a really promising start, I think, for Jacob. As he sets out on his return to Esau, God's angels meet with him. And there's something military about these angels. They're, they're soldier-like. That's why Jacob says, this is the camp of God. It is like a military camp. And this encourages Jacob. He's not going to meet Esau alone. The Lord will be with him. And that faith, the Lord is with me, that is what gives Jacob the confidence to reach out to Esau. So verse 3, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Think of the, the Lord's with me. I, I've seen him, the, the camp of the Lord, it's there. 
So I'm going to reach out to Esau because everything's going to be okay. But that faith, that confidence, quickly turns to fear. In verse 6, Jacob's messengers return from seeing Esau, and, and look what they say. We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. Now, if they stop there, you think, well, that's quite nice. That's all right. Esau's coming to meet me. He's coming personally to greet me. That's brilliant. But then the messengers finish their reply, and 400 men are with him. It's not just Esau with a nice picnic, and they're going to meet in the desert, and they're going to sit down and catch up. No, it's Esau with 400 men. That's a, that's a military kind of battalion almost. It's an army. And at that point, what happens to Jacob's faith, verse 7, in great fear and distress? Jacob divided the people who were with him. He divided them into two groups, and he thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. So you see, from faith, he's now gone to fear. Great fear and distress overcame him. It's, it's that dread, the horrible feeling that the earth is about to give way, that the worst possible outcome is about to happen. It's that dread. And filled with fear, Jacob does what he always does. He goes into self-reliance mode. I can fix this mode. So he splits his group into two. He assumes that some will have to die but that's the price worth paying if it means he can survive. Faith gives way to fear. But then Jacob surprises us because it's as if there's this internal battle going on inside him. He's learned something these last 20 years. He's learned that God is strong and good and trustworthy. And so the faith kicks back in again. He prays, verse 9. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said I will surely make you prosper. It's a beautiful prayer. Jacob appeals to God on the basis of God's promises. Lord, you said to me, I will be with you. I will do good to you. So please keep that promise that you made. Now, now, there's, there's a little bit of Jacob first in this prayer. You know, still, still looking out for number one, verse 11. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me. It's all about Jacob. But then he kind of remembers, doesn't he? And save also the mothers and their children. You know, there's still a little bit of kind of Jacob has this kind of sense of his own importance. But he says, and also the mothers and their children. But this is a high point in the Jacob story. He looks to the Lord to get him out of this mess. He recognizes his own limits. He says, Lord, I can't do this. I need you to do this. This prayer is faith. So you've got this battle going on inside Jacob. Faith, then fear, then faith. But in the end, I think it's fear that wins out. 
Verse 13, Jacob goes back to his scheming ways. He comes up with a plan to pacify Esau. He plans to send Esau wave after wave of gifts so that by the time Esau's kind of fought his way through the sheep and the goats and the camels, he'll see Jacob and no longer feel angry. That's the plan. Now, this could be faith. This could be faith acting wisely at this point. Because having faith in the Lord doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing. Maybe this is just wisdom from Jacob, and it really could be. But but what we see next makes me think that it's probably fear. So Jacob sends the gifts in three groups, and he tells those leading the groups, when you meet Esau, say, verse 18, these animals belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. Jacob is at the back. Read it again in verse 20. And be sure to say your servant Jacob is coming behind us. Jacob is at the back. And verse 21. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night or stayed behind in the camp. Jacob is at the back. And in a moment we're going to read that Jacob sends his family over ahead of him. You see, this feels more like fear than faith. Jacob is hiding at the back, hoping that angry Esau might call by the time he meets Jacob. By the time he's got through the camels and the sheep and the goats and then his own family, maybe then Esau's anger would have called. It feels more like fear than faith, this plan. And so Jacob swings between the two, faith and fear, and faith and fear. And I think there is something very relatable about Jacob here, swinging between those two things. We we, we know something of that, don't we? We'll have those moments when we have to face our kind of Esau, some threat, some crisis, something that seems beyond what we can cope with. And when we face those Esau moments, we want to be the people who respond in faith. The Lord is with us. The Lord is good. We can have peace about this. We don't have to face this crisis alone. We we want to have that kind of faith response. But what so often happens is this. We see our Esau moment coming closer and closer. And we take our eyes off of the Lord. And we look to ourselves And we forget his majesty, his presence, his goodness, and we think this is down to me. I've got to sort this out. I've got to deal with this. And as soon as that happens, the fear floods in, the anxiety and the worry. We feel overwhelmed and unable to face that Esau moment. We take our eyes off the Lord and the self-reliance and the striving And the fear flood back. So Jacob is about to meet Esau. And he's filled, I think, with fear. Still trying to scheme his way through this mess. But before he actually encounters Esau, something happens. Something strange. Something unexpected. He has a wrestling match with God. That's where we're going next. Divine humbling leaves us blessed. Human striving leaves us fearful. Divine humbling leaves us blessed. So before Jacob can get to Esau and step into the homeland, first he has to cross this river. And he sends over his possessions. He sends over his family. 
And then he's left all alone. And just as he's about to cross, verse 24, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And and as you read this, this just comes from absolutely nowhere. This complete stranger turns up and starts fighting with Jacob. That is strange, isn't it? I mean, if you were in the city center of Southampton on a Friday night, maybe not that strange, but for a stranger just to kind of randomly attack you, it's an odd thing. But what's even weirder is that this figure wrestling with Jacob turns out to be divine. He is a God-man. It is the Lord in the form of a man who wrestles Jacob. Now, what's going on? Why is that happening? Because I think after 20 years, even after 20 years of scheming and being schemed against, Jacob still has not learned that blessing and life is a gift that you receive from God rather than a prize that you strive for. It's the same thing we've seen all the way through. Jacob still hasn't learned that life and blessing is a gift that you receive from God rather than something you scheme and strive for. Now, at first, Jacob responds to this person like he responds to everything else in life. He fights and he wrestles and he trusts in his own strength. And it looks like it's going well. Verse 24, a man wrestled with Jacob till daybreak. The man saw that he couldn't overpower him. This wrestling match seems to be a draw, but then just as the final bell is about to ring, the stranger, this divine figure, pulls off a phenomenal move. Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. That word touch literally means to, to tap or to brush past, a very light thing. It's, 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 a, it's a very unconventional wrestling move, the touch move. I think I've mentioned before at the front here that I used to enjoy a bit of WWF or WWE as it is now, professional wrestling uh, when I was younger. And, and all the big-time wrestlers, they had their signature move. Stone Cold Steve Austin had the Stone Cold Stunner. That's how he'd finish people off. The Undertaker had the Tombstone. That's how uh, he finished people off. Gavin, you remember this? I could say you do brilliant. I'm sorry, I'm not on my own. That's great. But you, you know, like the touch move, this is unconventional. But it's very effective. One touch and Jacob's hip is broken. You see, here's the truth of what's going on in this wrestling match. It's not an even contest that we first thought. One touch of supernatural power and God breaks Jacob. He brings Jacob to his knees. Jacob can no longer fight. He can no longer strive. Instead, the only thing he can do, verse 26, the man said to him, let me go for it's daybreak. You can imagine Jacob now on his knees, his hip broken, holding on to this figure. That's all he can do. And Jacob replied, I'll not let you go unless you bless me. All Jacob can do is hold on and beg for blessing. He can't strive and wrestle anymore. All he can do is hold on to God and beg for his blessing. In verse 29, the God-man blesses Jacob. See, the one thing that Jacob has wanted in his life, the blessing of God, he gets, but it's not through his own striving and scheming and tricking. He gets it by asking. It is a gift that you receive 
not something you win by striving. So do you see what's going on in this wrestling match? God breaks Jacob so that he can bless Jacob. Let me try and illustrate that. When Elijah was younger, maybe two years old or something, he, he loved, um, this is our son if you don't know Elijah, he, he loved a bit of breakfast cereal for a snack and so he'd kind of wander into the kitchen as two-year-olds do and find the Cheerios and, and kind of pour himself out some Cheerios and, and uh, nibble away on those. But once or twice, he, he might go in the kitchen and not be able to open the box. So maybe it's a new box or something. He can't open the box. So I'd come along and see him trying to struggle to open this box, and immediately he assumes, oh, nasty daddy's going to take away my Cheerios. And so he'd hold on to the box even more tightly, trying to open it. But what if I was nice daddy on one of those rare occasions? What if I wanted him to enjoy the Cheerios? The thing is, I can't give him the Cheerios until he stops holding tightly onto the box. So we have to wrestle, have to kind of go kind of into a bit of combat, and it's kind of a two or three rounds when Elijah was two. He was a strong lad. And, and in the end, I'd, I'd kind of break him, not literally, but I'd be able to kind of get him to the point where I could take the box off of him. And only then could I open the box and pour out some Cheerios and give them to him. You see, the sense which had to break him before I could bless him, before I could give him what he wants. And the Lord does the same with Jacob. He breaks Jacob so that he can bless Jacob. Jacob's been struggling and striving and scheming for blessing for life since the moment he was born. But it doesn't work. And the only way he can truly experience that life is he receives it as a gift from God. And so God breaks Jacob. He leaves Jacob on his knees. can do nothing more than hold on to the Lord and say, please bless me. And then the Lord blesses him. He breaks him so that he can bless him. And it's possible, isn't it, that the Lord might do the same to us? You see, what stops us experiencing God's salvation in life? Maybe we're not a Christian. What stops us experiencing God's salvation in life? Or even if we are a Christian, what stops us receiving God's ongoing, sustaining help? Well, it's our Jacob-like self-reliance, isn't it? We think we can do this on our own. We think we can cope and manage and engineer the kind of life that we want. We don't need God. We're like that, that two-year-old Elijah with the Cheerios. I can open this on my own. I can do this. And so we don't pray, and we don't seek the Lord, and we don't get his blessing and his help. It's possible, isn't it? Because he loves us so much, that the Lord might allow us to get to a point when we feel broken, a point of despair, when we have to admit that we need Him. When we finally give up and say, Lord, please bless me. I cannot bring about a full and deep and meaningful life on my own. Please give me life, give me wisdom, give me help. And it's only then that the Lord can bless us and help us. He humbles us in order to bless us. Augustus, top lady. Not only did he have one of the greatest names in the 19th century, Augustus, top lady. He also wrote one of the greatest hymns, talked about it many times at the front before, Rock of Ages. The words to the hymn came to him when he was traveling on foot and he got caught in this dramatic storm. 
He feared kind of almost for his life and he hid in the cleft of a rock, the gap of a rock. And as the storm raged over him, he was overwhelmed by the majesty of God. He was humbled. And as he was humbled, he wrote these words beyond the screen. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. He is humbled. And then he cries out for that blessing. You see what God does? What the Lord Jesus does? He breaks us. He allows us to reach a point where we are humbled and all we can do is cry out, Lord, I can't do this. I can't save myself. Please save me. I can't change myself. I can't engineer my life. Jesus, I need you. I need you to forgive me. I need you to die for me. I need you to live for me. I need you to bless me. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Bless me, Savior, or I die. So the Lord stops Jacob. He breaks Jacob. He humbles him so that he can bless him. He's determined that Jacob would understand that the way of blessing comes through a gift from the Lord, not something you strive for. And that blessing transforms Jacob. That's our final point. Divine blessing leaves us renewed. So the Lord breaks Jacob so that he can bless him. But in Genesis 32, what is the actual blessing that the Lord gives Jacob? God doesn't say, I'm going to give you loads of sheep and goats. You'll have lots of children. No, Jacob's already got all those things. He doesn't say, I'm going to pacify Esau for you so you don't have to face his anger. That isn't the blessing. Instead, we're just told, verse 29, that the Lord blessed him. So what is it? Well, I think the blessing is the encountering of God. I mean, look at the topic of conversation. Jacob asks, verse 29, please tell me your name, he says to this figure wrestling with him. The conversation is about the identity of this mysterious figure. And the God-man replies, why do you ask my name? Jacob, you know who I am. That's what he's saying. And later as Jacob looks back, he realizes who he was fighting with. Verse 30, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Why does the Lord go to these incredible lengths to break Jacob? What is the Lord so determined to give him? Himself. What is it that Jacob needs before he faces the most terrifying, the most threatening moment in his life, encountering his brother who's filled with murderous rage? It's not an army. That's not what Jacob needs. It's not more money to pay Esau off. It is an encounter with the living God. That is what he needs before he faces Esau. That is the blessing. Jacob encounters God and he survives. Jacob has his heart and his mind filled with the living God. And that is a powerful thing, isn't it? It transforms Jacob. He's given a new name. He's given a new life. And there are so many ways, if we had time going into chapter 33, where you see the transformation of Jacob. But notice this one thing. He now faces Esau, not with fear, but with courage. 
We didn't read this, but if you've got a Bible in front of you, have a look at chapter 33, verse 1. Jacob eventually encounters Esau, and notice where now Jacob stands. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. There's still this threat. There's 400 men. So he divides his family up. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. Now, old Jacob, where would old Jacob be in that list of names? Well, he'd be at the back, wouldn't he? Hiding, probably, behind his youngest son, Joseph. But what actually happens, verse 3? Jacob himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Now he leads from the front. He puts his own life on the line. He is no longer afraid of Esau and the consequences. Why? Because he's encountered the living Lord and lived. His heart and his mind are now filled with a sense of the living God. Life and blessing, he knows, are secure in God's hands. So what can Esau do to him? He could take away all his possessions, but Jacob has the greatest blessing of all. He knows the living God. Esau could take away his health, his life even, his freedom, but Jacob has the greatest life there is to know the living God, and Esau can't take that away. The Lord has wrestled with Jacob. He's forced Jacob to look at him, to see the blessing that comes from him. And that takes away Jacob's fear and it fills him with courage. What do we need if we are going to face our Esau moment? What do we need more than anything else? We need an encounter with the living God. We need to have our hearts and our minds filled with Jesus, his glory, his goodness and his love. We need to remember that everything that is of ultimate value and worth, the blessing of of life, is a gift from the Lord and it's secure in his hands. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have an inheritance that is kept secure for us in the future. Everything that is of ultimate value and worth is secure in Christ. That's what we need to have our hearts and our minds filled with. That's what we're reminded of as we gaze upon the Lord Jesus. And just as we close, notice one last thing, one last painful kindness from God. 32 verse 31. The sun rose above Jacob as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Jacob walks away from his encounter with God. He doesn't walk, he limps away from his encounter with God. Yes, Jacob is changed, but old habits die hard. And this is a kindness from God. The Lord daily breaks Jacob so that he can daily bless him. I mean, think about it. With every limp, Jacob is reminded, I am weak, but God is strong. With every limp, Jacob is reminded, I can't do this on my own. I can't bring about life and blessing on my own. I need the Lord. And with every limp, he is forced to look towards God. And that is true for us. We may be changed. We may have put our faith in Jesus. And we are new in Christ. But old habits die hard. The old habits of self-reliance. The old habits of taking our eyes off the Lord and putting them on ourselves. They they die hard. 
and in his loving but painful kindness, it might be that the Lord somehow and in some way chooses to keep us weak, to daily break us and humble us, so that daily we look to him and we cry out to him and we find courage in him. Human striving for life, to try and grasp what we want, will leave us fearful. Divine humbling leaves us blessed. The Lord will break us so that he can bless us, so that we reach out to him and ask for what we need. And that divine blessing, encountering the Lord, transforms us. With our eyes fixed on him and hearts filled with him, we find that courage to face whatever our Esau moment might be, because we know that our, heart, our lives and everything that is good is secure in God. Moment of quiet, and I'm going to pray.